Good morning, everyone. Opening up to Ephesians as a church uh, and working through it together is new, but it's also old. In fact, it's the book of Ephesians where this church began to meet together on Sundays 11 years ago. Um, and and there's, there's two reasons uh, grounded in both of those realities why we're opening Ephesians this morning. Um, the first is because it follows Galatians. And our general pattern here is just to mostly work through the New Testament and then make sure and reach into the Old Testament and other sections of Scripture along the way. Um, but we, we desire to understand uh, and consider and learn of the whole of Scripture. And so that's, that's our goal. So we're moving to Ephesians. But I did have the possibility of skipping Ephesians since we covered that. And one truth is we didn't cover that. Uh, in fact, reflecting, um, besides Amy and Nick and his wife Anna and myself and my wife, most of you weren't here for that. Um, if you were, you would remember that it was October and we were in a bar and there was a massive 10-foot, uh, you know, kind of like Grim Reaper thing hanging from the ceiling above us. It was an interesting time, the time when we had to put post-it notes over the obscene posters in the bathrooms because it wasn't our space. Um, nonetheless, uh, but the real reason I decided to return to Ephesians is because we are in a season where everything we know, inside and outside the church, has been dismantled and left, you know, spread out across the living room floor. It's a time to rebuild. It's a time to reconsider, and I cannot think of a better New Testament book to uh, use as counsel, to ask the big questions, who are we in Christ? What is life about? What is the church? In fact, I would suggest to you, if you wanted to know what the book of Ephesians is about, it is about the church. It is about who we are as the people of God and what God has done for us and will do through us and in us in Jesus Christ. And so I'm very excited to return to this um, and uh, to begin with, as we look first at chapter one, we're going to start a new series we have called Called to be Saints, Embracing Our Identity in Christ, okay? And so this is where Paul begins. He begins with the big question of who are we in Christ? And so what I'd like to do this morning is just look at the first two verses of the book. I think you'll be surprised by that when we read them together because it's basically just the outside of the envelope. In fact, look with me at these first two verses. Verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. At a glance, like I said, this looks like the outside of the envelope or maybe the front of the greeting card right? We know who wrote it, we know who it's written to, and then we have just a wave of the hand greeting. This, this is not the content of the letter, it's, it's, it's the address. However, it's especially valuable to us this morning because although it looks boilerplate, it looks template, it looks like how many of Paul's letters begin, it is chock full of major themes and even key words in the rest of the book. So for example, notice that he says, Paul, an, an apostle of Jesus, Christ Jesus by the will of God. It's very common for Paul to introduce himself as an apostle, 
But when he says here, by the will of God, that phrase, will of God, occurs another seven times in Ephesians. It's a, it's a central concept. Here he addresses it to the saints who are in Ephesus. And that word occurs nine times in the letter. It, he says to the, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. That three-word phrase, in Christ Jesus, occurs 25 times in Ephesians. Uh, and then he says grace and peace. And you can open up not just the letters of Paul, but the letters of Peter, and you will find this greeting, grace and peace. But it's especially valuable here in Ephesians because grace is a primary and central term that he refers to 12 times, and peace he refers to eight times. In fact, in Ephesians, we find a unique phrase in the mouth of Paul as he refers to the gospel, the good news, as the gospel of peace. So there's more than meets the eye here. Paul is a master communicator and an especially gifted writer. And so even in his introduction, he is introducing his major themes and setting a framework for us. And this is especially true for chapter one. I want you to reflect with me this morning on the second half there of verse two, when it says, to the saints... That's who this letter is written to, to the saints, specifically the ones who are in Ephesus. But as we go along in the letter, we'll see that this is a category that we also, as believers in Christ, find our identity in. So if Paul was writing a letter to us and he wanted to convey this, he'd say to the saints who are in Seattle. Now that's a little bit awkward for us because in Modern English, a saint usually refers to either someone of ridiculously high moral standing or someone who has been recognized religiously as a certified saint, right? Both categories, we can probably think of Mother Teresa as an example. If you grew up in a Catholic background, the Catholic Church has looked at Mother Teresa and identified her as a saint, okay? Or if you just want to talk about the way that we use the language in kind of common, we'd we'd say the woman is a saint, right? And what we're saying is she lives a life of incredibly high moral caliber. Both of those are statements of uniqueness, a unique certification, a unique degree, okay? But that's not how Paul or the New Testament uses the language. When Paul is writing here, he's not saying, hey, church in Ephesus, would you let me talk to the saints for just a minute? Everyone else can tune out, right? He collectively draws a circle around the church and says, I am calling you saints. I want to identify you as the saints, okay? And the reason why I'm hitting this so hard this morning is because we kind of need to pull the air brake on our thinking and refresh the idea, start over again and say, What is a saint? What does Paul mean when he looks at us as a church and says, you are the saints? Okay. What I'm going to suggest to you this morning is that to understand what a saint is, is to understand the story of what God is doing. Or to put it differently, since this is who you are in Christ, the way that we're going to go about for the next couple of weeks understanding our identity is to understand the story that we find ourselves in. So I want to pray um, after rereading these two, you know, very slim verses. I want to read them again. I want to pray, and then we'll take a deeper look. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, what you accomplished in Jesus Christ, you also gave us your word to reveal. You gave us not just the Gospels that tell us the story of what Jesus did and said and how he died in our place for our sins and rose from the dead, but you also gave us these, the epistles. You gave us these letters that further explain the significance of those events. And these ones tell us not just who Jesus is, but who we are in Christ. That means that it touches on our calling It means that it touches on our identity. It means that it touches on every aspect and facet of our lives. And so we want to come before you with open ears. And we pray that you would help us to see who it is that you have made and are making and will make us in Jesus Christ. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Let's go back again to verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In the broad, all Paul is trying to say is, I've been appointed as a spokesperson for Jesus. Jesus sent me with a mission to represent him and a message that is his message. In fact, he tells us more about this in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he goes, let me tell you a little bit more about myself. Verse 2, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Okay? In other words, he says, I have been given a commission, God has given me a message, and it's a new message. And then he says in verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Okay, do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, God chose me, God gave me a message, and here he reminds us that he did it by his grace. In other words, Paul didn't apply for the position, nor did he earn or deserve it. In fact, when God called him, he was an enemy of Jesus Christ, persecuting Christians. Okay, now, I think it is valuable to take this phrase, Paul of of an apostle of Christ Jesus, and recognize that it conveys authority. Paul isn't writing here an essay of his own perspective on what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He has been chosen and given a message, and when he speaks, he speaks for Jesus. In fact, we can see that in Ephesians as well. Look with me at what it says in chapter 2. Verse, where's the one I want? Verse 17. Now this passage is talking about Jesus and that gospel of peace that I mentioned, but notice what it says about Jesus, verse 17. He came and preached peace to you 
who were far off, and peace to those who were near. Who's the you in that sentence? The church in Ephesus. Now read the Gospels closely, you will find Jesus didn't leave the land of Israel except to just slip slightly on the edge of it into where the Decapolis is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Ephesus is hundreds of miles away. Jesus was never there. He didn't preach in the flesh, in person, to the church in Ephesus. In fact, if you read the book of Acts and you look at chapter 17, we know exactly where the church in Ephesus came from. It came from the preaching of Paul. Paul came into Ephesus and he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue and in the marketplace and even rented out a hall called the Hall of Tyrannus where he spent years preaching and explaining and dialoguing until it says all of Asia, the region in which Ephesus is found, had heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Three years of Paul's ministry and here he says, and Jesus came and he preached to you. And this is exactly what Jesus said the apostles would do. He says, whoever receives you, receives me. Okay? The idea here is that Paul is chosen to represent Jesus and speak for him. Now, why does that matter when it comes to our identity as saints? It means that Paul is a qualified interpreter of your identity. It means that when he writes this here, Unlike other people in your life who are constantly telling you who you are or who you are not, Paul speaks for Jesus. Paul speaks for God and says, let me tell you who you are. Let me give you your identity. So it's no surprise then that when Paul opens his mouth and identifies his audience, he does it in language you're not used to hearing. Okay. He says to the saints... Now, the word here for saint, in the Greek, it's just the word holy, and it's put in a participle form, meaning that it's the holy ones. And so it, it just says to the holies, is all it says. And it's translated saint here because of a long history of English words related to holiness. In fact, if you want a touch point, think of the word sanctification or sanctified. That comes, that's the connective tissue between holy and saint, but it just means to the holy ones. Now, that doesn't necessarily make the language more easy for us to understand. In fact, I don't know about you, but when I hear the language of the holy ones, I think of angels. That's the category I think of. So it's still distant, it's still surprising, but it does get us to the root of the idea. What makes you a saint is not the recognition of the Catholic Church, or the recognition of society as a whole, it has something to do with holiness. Now, unfortunately, holiness is a much more common term, but just as easy to misunderstand. What do we mean when we say that something is holy? Okay. If you look at the Old Testament, you will find that Jerusalem is a holy city, that the temple is a holy building, that the tools that are made to assist the priests in their sacrifice, that they are holy, that the priests themselves are holy. What do these things all have in common? Okay. What they have in common is that they have been designated for a specific purpose. What's the difference between Jerusalem and the city down the road? Jerusalem is designated as the place of God's temple. 
The place where his name will dwell is the language the Old Testament uses. What's the difference between a priest and a barber? The priest is designated to God. What's the difference between a tool that's used in your kitchen and one that's used in the temple? This one is designated as just for the temple. One is a spoon, the other is a holy spoon. Okay. Now this is important because sometimes we think, all right, the word holy, or we've been told the word holy means to be set apart. And what that means is we think of holiness and we think of distance. Holy needs, means to be away from. It means to be untouched by. It means to be different. Okay. But it doesn't just mean that. It means designated towards a purpose. It doesn't mean purposeless. It means very small circle around the purpose. It doesn't mean distant. It means focused. Okay. And so the idea of holiness is designated for a specific purpose. No longer general or generic. So Paul could have said to the people in Ephesus, but he says to the holy ones, to the saints, to the ones who are designated towards. Now, very clearly, there's a relationship between the holy ones here and the holy one, God. In fact, there is no person or place we find the idea of holiness more stressed than in God himself. Think of the angels in Isaiah chapter 6, who Isaiah sees as surrounding the throne. How is it that they identify and worship the God who is seated at the throne? Holy, holy, holy. They have to say it three times, but they don't need any other words, right? That is the primary characteristic. And again, because because of the way we think of holy, what we think of is that God's holiness keeps him at a distance. It sets him apart. And it definitely means that he is unique, right? Again, not a generic, lowercase g God, the holy God, right? Not a, not a person who's different than us just in power, but, but in a designated and specific way, the holy one, okay? But the problem is, when we start with this idea of holiness as distance, as set apart, as these types of things, this is how we tend to talk about God. We think God is so holy that he is unapproachable. And so we tend to think of God's holiness like he has uh, a, a fear of sin's contagion. Okay, You know the old videos of, of like a, a housewife and there's rats and she pulls her dress up, right? That's the image that always sticks with me with this concept of holiness. It, it, it's trying to keep it clean. It's trying to stay at a distance, right? But is that really the holiness we see of God? Go back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, suddenly we have sin. Adam and Eve have rebelled against God. They've eaten of the fruit. They've done the one thing they told him not to do. And so now there is something that separates and divides God from people. What does God do? Does he call them over the phone from a distance and say, I can no longer come into your presence. Now there's this problem of sin, so I'm going to have to stay at a distance from you. Does he just disappear and go silent? No, the next sentence, after sin enters the picture, it says, God came walking in the garden of the cool of the day and said, Adam, where are you? Sin is there. 
and God enters into it. What about Isaiah? What about that throne room I mentioned in Isaiah chapter 6, where the angels are standing around saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah finds himself in the midst of that temple, and the sin issue is an issue. It says, as soon as he saw this, as soon as he saw God for all that he is, he said, woe is me, for I am an unclean man of an unclean people. But did Isaiah accidentally stumble into the temple of the Lord? Was he just going about his business and he opened the wrong door and it was like, oh, I don't belong here. No, he was summoned. God brought him into his presence. There he is, by his own admission, a sinner, undeserving of God's presence, but God brought him there. What's going on? I would suggest to you, and we have to get this right before we can talk about our own role as the holy ones, I would suggest to you that we tend to think of God's holiness as impenetrable when we should think of it as invasive. Okay. We tend to think of it as being a wall that keeps us from God. And we need to deal with the problem, and we'll come back to it. There really is a problem. But instead, I would suggest to you that God's holiness is what brings him into the presence of sin. It's what brings him into the reality of these things. It's what brings him to do something about his people who are now a sinful people in need of a savior. No place is this greater expressed than in the life of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus takes on flesh and enters into the world and lives in the midst of a sinful people, and yet he is holy. He doesn't set his holiness on side and say, I'll be right back. I can't take my holiness with me, so I'm just going to hang it on the coat rack in heaven and, and go to earth without it, right? And as he walks, he lives a perfectly clean life. In fact, he does things that make us scratch our heads, if you're familiar with the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament says, don't touch a leper, he will make you unclean. And miraculously, Jesus touches the leper. Jesus doesn't become unclean, but the leper becomes clean. Right? His holiness is actually contagious. Instead of the sinners and the disease and things being contagious, it flows in the other direction. But that's just a manifestation of who God really is. Go back to the garden. God doesn't say to Adam and Eve, all right, now you are outsiders, and you're going to have to take care of this before you can come back into my presence. No, he says, this is going to have to be taken care of it, and I will come and take care of it. His promise, his work. In Isaiah, Isaiah falls to the ground, woe is me, I am an unclean man of a people uh, with unclean lips, and God sends for an angel to take a coal from the altar and sanctify Isaiah's mouth. Sanctify. Set him apart. Make him holy. Designate him for a purpose. Okay. Now this is important for two reasons. First, because God's holiness is innate just a part of who he is our holiness is given not earned when he says to the saints here he's not handing out blue ribbons when he says to the saints here he's not applauding them for what they've accomplished he's not giving them certification for the way that they've achieved <laughs> instead 
he's identifying what God has truly done for them in Christ. Now, there's one more layer that we need to add to this idea of saint or holy ones that's really important. When Paul says here to the saints, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say to those who will one day be saints. He says to the saints, present tense. This is one of the things that's hard for us to wrap our head around when we read the New Testament. It has to do with the fact that the apostles themselves and the pages of Scripture seem very comfortable to talk about things as they are and things as they will be, and we sense attention in those things. They don't. Okay. So, for example, he says, he says to the saints, but notice what he says here in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay. Now, there's a difficulty in understanding that verse because when did God choose us to be holy and blameless? Today? No, a long time ago. So that mean he chose us a long time ago to be holy and blameless today or holy and blameless someday? I would suggest to you it's the second. And, and it's pretty easy to do. Would you identify yourself as being blameless right now? No. But according to the New Testament, if you are in Jesus Christ, one day you will stand before him completely blameless, without flaw, no longer a sinner. And so in that sense, saint is your destiny. But in another sense, saint is your identity, present tense. Let me use church language again for those of you who grew up in church. A lot of times we separate salvation into three categories, each of them having a different spot on the timeline. You were justified, you are being sanctified, and you will be glorified. Okay? So you already positionally in Christ are righteous. That's the place you have. God just sees you as righteous because of what Jesus has done. Currently in his life, he is making you more and more what you really are. That's sanctification, making you righteous. And one day he will finish that work and you will truly be righteous. Okay? Justification, sanctification, glorification. That's a great tool for describing salvation, except that the New Testament doesn't keep those clean boundaries. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's, it talks about who we were before Christ and lists all sorts of sinful identities. And it says, but you were washed, you were justified, and you were sanctified. Is that past, present, or future? Past. When you became a believer in Jesus Christ, you were sanctified. Okay. What I'm suggesting to you, and this is what we're going to do for the next few weeks, because when Paul starts in verse 3, all the way through verse uh, 14 is a single Greek sentence, a long and a nuanced one. And what it is, is the story of your life in a single sentence. Beginning in eternity past, stretching all the way to eternity future, and weaving this through, okay? It is the story of saints. It is your story. But we need to recognize this morning that it is only our story because it is God's story and he's brought us into it. Now, we need to hit one other kind of cultural issue here before we go any further, which is when we think about our own identity in our own modern way of thinking, we think of it as something that is up to us to form. 
This is every Disney movie that's been made over the last 20 years. Your parents, your traditions, your background, your culture doesn't tell you who you are. Only you can tell you who you are. It's internal. Identity in our mindset is often about expressing what's inside and not about what other people say about us. Now, for one, that just doesn't work. We care way too much what other people say about us, and maybe we should. Maybe that's why we do care. It's not that everybody says the right thing, but we know inherently, innately, that we can't build an identity just on us. We need other people. We need to be part of a group, part of a community. We need to have things in common. We need to find our place in society. So many things, right? That's what I, identity is about instead of this internal expression. But even if my philosophical instincts on that are incorrect, God wants to tell you who you are. He sees that as vital and essential. Let me illustrate. One of the ways that we tell stories is interactively. In other words, I don't tell a story about someone else and you are just an audience member, but you help me tell the story through your participation. Consider a stage play. What I'm suggesting to you is that God is writing the story, he has cast the characters, and you are playing the part of saint. So what does it look like to do that well? It means you have to read the script. It means you have to enter into the story and fully embody what the character is supposed to be. You are not a saint by nature. As the old hip-hop band understood, by nature, you're naughty right? You're not a saint by nature. This is what God has made, is making, and will make you. And that means entering into that story. And this is so important because the identity crisis that we're collectively facing in our age is because we are believing and stepping into stories that don't work. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the celebrities who are in Ephesus, to the world changers and activists who are in Ephesus. Now, can a celebrity be a saint? Of course. Can an activist be a saint? Yeah, no problem. My point is not that you can't be these other things. It's which one is most core to your identity? Which one defines you? Which one becomes the sun that all of your other aspects orbit around so that it's not chaos? Biblically, God has laid out the story of what it means to be human. And what Paul desires to do is to explain that to us. And what I'm asking us to do as a church for the next couple of weeks is enter into and understand that story. Understand a new origin. Understand a new purpose. Understand a new future, longing, hope so that we can be what we are becoming because of what God has made us in Jesus. I'm pretty sure that's bad English, but it's good theology. Let's look at another phrase here. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Just one little comment. Notice it's the saints who are in Ephesus. Not fleeing Ephesus, not separate from Ephesus, right? Not in the, in the compound, away from the rest of humanity, being holy and protected, right? Just like God's holiness, 
Saints are invasive. They enter into the world. They step into the lives of their neighbors. They're present in the world, not escaping from it. And that's because they're holy, not in tension with their holiness. But also, not only are they in Ephesus, but notice they are also in Christ Jesus. Where do the saints exist? In Ephesus and in Christ Jesus. In fact, notice how important that idea of in is as we keep reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, where? In him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Look at verse 7. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Look at verse 11. In him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. In Christ, as I told you, is repeated 25 times in this letter. And that means two things. One, that as a Christian, you cannot understand who you are unless you understand that you've been placed in Christ. That your identity has been wrapped up in him. That your story has been molded into his story. And two that you became a saint because of Christ Jesus. Okay. Because of what Jesus has done, you are now placed in Christ, okay, and that changes the story. This is the deep waters of what the Bible teaches, this idea of being in Christ. And if you want evidence of that, just try and think of a parallel. It's really limited. Like maybe when you were in utero, you were in your mom. But that's clearly not what's being talked about here. What does it mean to be placed in Christ? What does it mean when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide where? In me. He doesn't say stay close to me. He doesn't say keep next to me. He says in me. What does it mean here when Paul says that you have been uh, placed in Christ Jesus? And so notice, for example, what it says in chapter 2, verse 4. But God, and this but God here talks about this same change, taken out of one story and put into another. This is where it all happens. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. Do you see the way it's been joined together? Now Jesus' story is your story. His fate is your fate. His righteousness is your righteousness. In fact, it says, and again, this is a head-scratcher, he says, you have already been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. In that sense, heaven is not where you will be because of what Christ has done. Heaven is where you are because Christ is there and you are in Christ. And you can try and understand this through symbolism and metaphor. You can try and understand it in terms of rhetoric. You can try and understand it in terms of mysticism. 
The only point that I'm trying to make this morning is that if you're going to understand who you are, you have to understand who you are in Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. Now I want to look at one more piece here, and it's found in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me to follow the grammar here. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We are saints in Christ Jesus, and then it's grace and peace from Christ Jesus and God. It doesn't matter the proposition, or sorry, the preposition. It doesn't matter the preposition. They all come from Jesus. You are in Jesus. The blessings come from Jesus. God sent Paul through Jesus, right, uh, by the will of God from the Father. These are the language. It's soaked in the works of God, but it's also summed up in these two words, grace to you and peace. Now, in normal letters of any given day, the ones in Rome say greetings, and actually the word is similar to the word grace here. It's just a slight modification. And the word peace is very common in Jewish letters from these days. Shalom, right? That's still common in Jewish letters today. But the combining of these two and pairing of them and using them so consistently is unique to the letters of the New Testament. Nobody said grace to you, opening letters outside of the New Testament church. And nobody said grace and peace to you. And some have suggested that Paul was just trying to speak to Gentiles and Jews, but I don't think that's right. Because these are not just cultural greetings. In fact, when he says grace to you and peace from you, he's not clearly not just saying God says hi. Right? In saying these, he's seeking to do something. He's seeking to accomplish something. He's not just saying hello to you in the language of grace and peace. He's imparting grace and peace. Okay. In other words, even though this is an introduction, it's somewhat like a benediction. Right? We always say in our church when the benediction is read, this is not just something the Bible says that you need to hear or that you need to know. It's something that's being spoken over you because it's true. Okay. But why grace and peace? I would suggest to you, again, it's because you will not understand what it means to be a saint without these concepts. Okay. And the first one is grace. And we've hit that over and over again this morning. How did you become a saint? By the grace of God. How will you grow as a saint? By the grace of God. How will that work be completed in you? By the grace of God. It is a gift, freely given in fact, we were reading in Ephesians 2 just a moment, again, a moment ago, but look down when he explains how this has happened in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the results of work, so that no one may boast. And that's why when we read this very long one-sentence explanation in verse 3 through 14 over the next few weeks, and it wants to describe your sainthood, it's not going to tell you about what you did. And it's not going to tell you about what you must do. It's going to tell you about what God has done, is doing, and will do. Because it is by grace. Okay? It is a gift. Now, I love this because if you read the New Testament closely, you discover that the, the role of saint is the best role. 
has the best ending in the best story, has the most joy and the most celebration, and it really is a story of gospel, a story of good news. And it is freely available to you, whereas all the other identities that we try and build our life around, all the other stories that we tell ourselves, put all the weight on your shoulders. Because you are this, you must do that. And the emphasis is, if you want to maintain this status, or if you want to achieve this status, or if you want to see it come to fruition, you are not just a character in the story, you have to write the story. You have to make it happen. You have to strive and you have to struggle. And so in this world, if you want to be a saint, you better start working. But when we say grace here, grace begins with something done for you. Grace begins to something freely offered. And a true biblical understanding grace extends into, even as you apply those things, you apply them with the help and the free help of God. Okay. And so, yes, the New Testament calls you to be what you are. But it's not be what you could be, because God has given you the opportunity. Now you need to figure it out. It's be what God is making you. God's involvement is still present. That's why when Paul talks to the church in Philippi, he says, he who began a good work in you, began the work, grace, will be faithful to complete it. Who's doing the work there? God. Okay. And what, let me lay down this grace one more time. When we want to communicate a command, we call that verb an imperative, right? That's the difference between he goes and go. You don't find an imperative except for one in chapter three, which is the word to remember. You don't find an imperative till chapter four. All chapter one, two, and three focuses on is what God has done, is doing, and will do. And then we get to chapter four and he says, therefore, and he tells us what to do. But even there, notice what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Even there, he doesn't say do. He says walk in. And that'll be a major phrase that we'll unpack more as we go through the book. But it's a therefore proposition. Live out what God is doing in your life, what God has done for you. Live as if you really were the child of God. Live as if God has actually given you his Holy Spirit. Live as if you are already the beloved in Christ Jesus. Okay. Now, one other thing about these first three chapters of Ephesians that's easy to miss. Again, I have to lampoon a summary of this that is very common. Sometimes we talk about the New Testament letters as being split in two halves, just like I just did. And so we talk about the indicatives and the imperatives, the truths and the therefore commands. But that doesn't work for Ephesians because the language that he uses from chapter one all the way through chapter three is liturgical. And so he says in verse three, blessed be, that's a benediction. And then when he finishes his benediction, he says in verse 15, for this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And that steps into a prayer. 
And so chapter 1 is a benediction followed by a prayer. Chapter 2 is an explanation of a few things that came up in the prayer. And then in chapter 3, he returns to the prayer again. Okay. In other words, these three chapters are not just to teach you truth. They are to make you worship. And the imperatives are not your end of the bargain. They're the worshipful response to a glorious God and what he has done in Jesus Christ. So that's grace. But what about peace? Like I said, peace has a unique place in Ephesians that we don't find in the other letters of the New Testament. It has a presence here that is not usually so present to the degree that at one point in Ephesians, Paul refers to the gospel itself as the gospel of peace. And again, we see that in chapter 2. And so notice what it says here in verse 15. Again, speaking of what Jesus has done, in fact, let's go back to verse 14. For he himself is our peace. What's the difference between Paul saying grace and be peacemakers and him saying grace and peace? Here he's giving a gift. He's imparting something. He's bestowing something. And so here, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace. He continues, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. Where do we see ourselves as active participants there? Where are we called to do something? Where are the indicative or the imperatives? Where are the commands? But we're not done. Verse 16, he makes the two one and, verse 16, might reconcile us both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. How did you become a saint? Because Christ made peace. Now we have to deal with one other misunderstanding here. Because a saint is such a high bar in the way that we talk about it, a saint is understood individually. A saint is this particular person because of their particular traits. But in Ephesian, it's always the saints, plural. It is a definition of a community. And so what he says here is that God is making one, making a new community, and they are the set-apart ones. Okay. And that requires peace. Because we can divide from one another. We can fulfill that old version of holiness and say, you are a different race than me, you have a different ideology than me, you are from a different economic class, and so we function in this modern misunderstanding of holiness that says, I will keep separate from you because you are unclean. But the holiness here, because it revolves around Jesus, breaks down all those hostilities and says, we are all one in and around Christ Jesus. And all those hostilities are reconciled, thereby making peace. Now, does this mean that we as saints should impart grace? Yes. Does it mean that we should be about the work of being peacemakers? Yes. But that is an implication of what God is doing. And it is only possible through the work of God. Okay. It is Jesus who tears down the hostility. It is Jesus who gives us unity. In fact, you know what's really interesting? Ephesians talks about unity a lot. 
it doesn't tell us to be unified. It doesn't see unity as something that we need to make or accomplish or pursue. It sees it as an innate reality that we need to maintain. Okay? So here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. And I know as an introduction, we're kind of heavily weighted on what comes next week. And if Jesus returns or if you're just passing through town, I wish I could have given you the whole story. But blame the space-time continuum. I can't do it all. It has to be weighted. But I would encourage you on two things this morning. One is, lean into the book of Ephesians. Don't just open it on Sundays. Read it. Think through it. Interrogate the text. Ask questions of it. Wrestle with it. Pray that it would be true and that it would be felt as true. Memorize it. Share it with one another as you have epiphanies. Enter into this text because this text is the script of what God is doing in your life. And then second, I would encourage you even this morning to allow God to identify how you identify. To allow God to share with you even spiritually, in a still small voice, share with you who it is you think you are or who it is the world tells you to be or who it is you're aspiring and maybe you'll just make it. As we go into this time of worship, take some time and see if you can find the label and set it aside. Surrender it. Tell God that you desire to know who you are. Enter into the identity and the community and the story that is available in Christ Jesus. Because again, it is purpose and destiny and God's will for your life and hope and a future. It is the all in all. It is the story that God is telling. God's story is not as simple as man went wrong and God fixed it. It is the story of God making a people for himself, a redeemed community, making you saints. This is your calling. This is your purpose. And this is what God has done, is doing, and will do. So let's enter into that story. Let's tell it to each other. Let's seek to embody all that it is that God is doing, will do, and has done in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to express for us collectively, for all who are in Jesus Christ, we want to know, to better understand, to better live in and live out from this identity as a community of saints, as holy ones who have been designated with a purpose, as those who are not just in Ephesus or in Seattle, but are also faithful because we are in Christ Jesus, as those who have been the recipients and have been transformed by grace and peace, as those who are the beloved from eternity, the redeemed in the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection, and those who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit and awaiting an inheritance. Lord, let that story so absorb us that we're absorbed into it. 
so that we live it out, that we live in it and from it and through it. We just ask that you do this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together.